Section 45 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rowan Pattigal. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 14, Part 2. At Easter, she went again to Maggie's home for a few days. She was, however, shy and fugitive. She saw Antony, how suggestive he was to look on, and how his eyes had a sort of supplicating light that was rather beautiful. She looked at him, and she looked again, for him to become real to her, but it was her own self that was occupied elsewhere. She seemed to have some other being, and she turned to spring and the opening buds. There was a large pear tree by a wall, and it was full, thronged with tiny grey-green buds, myriads, she stood before it arrested with delight, and a realisation went deep into her heart. There was so great a host in array behind the cloud of pale dim green, so much to come forth, so much sunshine to pour down. So the weeks passed on, trance-like and pregnant. The pair at Cossethay burst into bloom against the cottage end, like a wave burst into foam. Then suddenly the bluebells came, blue as water standing thin in the level places under the trees and bushes, flowing in more and more till there was a flood of azure and pale green leaves burning and tiny birds with fiery little song and flight. Then swiftly the flood sank and was gone and it was summer. There was to be no going to the seaside for a holiday. The holiday was the removal from Cossethay. They were going to live near Willie Green, which place was most central for Brangwen. It was an old, quiet village on the edge of the thronged colliery district, so that it served in its quaintness of odd, old cottages lingering in their sunny gardens as a sort of bower or pleasance to the sprawling colliery townlet of Beldover, a pleasant walk round for the colliers on Sunday morning before the public houses opened. In Willie Green stood the grammar school where Brangwen was occupied for two days during the week and where experiments in education were being carried on. Ursula wanted to live in Willie Green on the remoter side towards Southwell and Sherwood Forest. There it was so lovely and romantic, but out into the world meant out into the world. Will Brangwen must become modern. He bought, with his wife's money, a fairly large house in the new red brick part of Beldover. It was a villa built by the widow of the late colliery manager and stood in a quiet new little side street near the large church. Ursula was rather sad. Instead of having arrived at distinction, they had come to a new red brick suburbia in a grimy small town. Mrs. Brangwen was happy. The rooms were splendidly large, a splendid dining room, drawing room and kitchen, besides a very pleasant study downstairs. Everything was admirably appointed. The widow had settled herself in lavishly. She was a native of Beldover and had intended to reign almost queen. Her bathroom was white and silver. Her stairs were of oak. Her chimney pieces were massive and oaken with bulging columnar supports. Good and substantial was the keynote. But Ursula resented the stout inflated prosperity implied everywhere. She made her father promise to chisel down the bulging oaken chimney pieces chisel them flat that sort of important paunch was very distasteful to her her father was himself long and loosely built what had he to do with so much good and substantial importance 
They bought a fair amount also of the widow's furniture. It was in common good taste. The great Wilton carpet, the large round table, the Chesterfield covered with glossy shints and roses and birds. It was all really very sunny and nice, with large windows and a view right across the shallow valley. After all, they would be, as one of their acquaintances said, among the elite of Beldover. They would represent culture, and as there was no one of higher social importance than the doctors, the colliery managers and the chemists, they would shine with their Della Robbia beautiful Madonna, their lovely reliefs from Donatello, their reproductions from Botticelli, nay, the large photographs of the Primavera and the Aphrodite and the Nativity in the dining-room, the ordinary reception-room, would make dumb the mouth of Beldover. And after all, it is better to be princess in Beldover than a vulgar nobody in the country. There was great preparation made for the removal of the whole Brangwen family, ten in all. The house in Beldover was prepared. The house in Cossethay was dismantled. Come the end of the school term, the removal would begin. Ursula left school at the end of July, when the summer holiday commenced. The morning outside was bright and sunny, and the freedom got inside the schoolroom this last day. It was as if the walls of the school were going to melt away. Already they seemed shadowy and unreal. It was breaking up morning. Soon scholars and teachers would be outside, each going his own way. The irons were struck off, the sentence was expired, the prison was momentary, shadow halting about them. The children were carrying away books and inkwell and rolling up maps. All their faces were bright with gladness and goodwill. There was a bustle of cleaning and clearing away all marks of this last term of imprisonment. They were all breaking free, busily, eagerly. Ursula made up her totals of attendance in the register. With pride she wrote down the thousands. To so many thousands of children had she given another session's lessons. It looked tremendous. The excited hours passed slowly in suspense. Then at last it was over. For the last time she stood before her children whilst they said their prayers and sang a hymn. Then it was over. Goodbye, children, she said. I shall not forget you, and you must not forget me. No, miss, cried the children in chorus with shining faces. She stood smiling on them, moved as they filed out. Then she gave her monitors their term sixpences, and they too departed. The cupboards were locked, blackboards washed, inkwells and dusters removed. The place stood bare and vacated. She had triumphed over it. It was a shell now. She had fought a good fight here, and it had not been altogether unenjoyable. She owed some gratitude even to this hard, vacant place that stood like a memorial or a trophy. So much of her life had been fought for and won and lost here. Something of the school would always belong to her, something of her to it. She acknowledged it, and now came the leave-taking. In the teacher's room, the teachers were chatting and loitering, talking excitedly of where they were going, to the Isle of Man, to Tlandadno, to Yarmouth. They were eager and attached to each other, like comrades leaving a ship. Then it was Mr. Harby's turn to make a speech to Ursula. He looked handsome with his silver-grey temples and black brows, and his imperturbable male solidity. Well, he said, we must say good-bye to Miss Brangwen and wish her all good fortune for the future. I suppose we shall see her again sometime and hear how she is getting on. Oh, yes, said Ursula, stammering, blushing, laughing. 
Oh, yes, I shall come and see you. Then she realised that this sounded too personal, and she felt foolish. Miss Schofield suggested these two books, he said, putting a couple of volumes on the table. I hope you will like them. Ursula, feeling very shy, picked up the books. There was a volume of Swinburne's poetry and a volume of Meredith's. Oh, I shall love them, she said. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much. It is so... She stuttered to an end and, very red, turned the leaves of the books eagerly, pretending to be taking the first pleasure, but really seeing nothing. Mr. Harvey's eyes were twinkling. He alone was at his ease, master of the situation. It was pleasing to him to make Ursula the gift and for once extended good feeling to his teachers. As a rule, it was so difficult, each one was so strained with resentment under his rule. Yes, he said. We hoped you would like the choice. He looked with his peculiar challenging smile for a moment, then returned to his cupboards. Ursula felt very confused. She hugged her books, loving them, and she felt that she loved all the teachers and Mr. Harby. It was very confusing. At last she was out. She cast one hasty glance over the school building squatting on the asphalt yard in the hot glistening sun. One looked down the well-known road and turned her back on it all. Something strained in her heart. She was going away. Well, good luck, said the last of the teachers as she shook hands at the end of the road. We'll expect you back some day. He spoke in irony. She laughed and broke away. She was free. As she sat on the top of the tram in the sunlight, she looked around her with tremendous delight. She had left something which had meant much to her. She would not go to school any more and do the familiar things. Queer. There was a little pang amid her exultation, of fear, not of regret, yet how she exulted this morning. She was tremulous with pride and joy. She loved the two books. They were tokens to her, representing the fruit and trophies of her two years, which, thank God, were over. To Ursula Brangwen, with best wishes for her future, and in warm memory of the time she spent in St. Philip's School was written in the headmaster's neat, scrupulous handwriting. She could see the careful hand holding the pen, the thick fingers with tufts of black hair on the back of each one. He had signed, all the teachers had signed. She liked having all their signatures. She felt she loved them all. They were her fellow workers. She carried away from the school a pride she could never lose. She had her place as comrade and sharer in the work of the school. Her fellow teachers had signed to her as one of them, and she was one of all workers. She had put her tiny brick to the fabric man was building. She had qualified herself as co-builder. Then the day for the home removal came. Ursula rose early to pack up the remaining goods. The carts arrived, lent by her uncle at the marsh, in the lull between the hay and corn harvest. The goods roped in the cart. Ursula mounted her bicycle and sped away to Beldover. The house was hers. She entered its clean scrubbed silence. The dining room had been covered with the thick rush matting, hard and of the beautiful luminous clean colour of sun-dried reeds. The walls were pale grey, the doors were darker grey. Ursula admired it very much as the sun came through the large windows streaming in. She flung open doors and windows to the sunshine. Flowers were bright and shining round the small lawn which stood above the road, looking over the raw field opposite, which would later be built upon. 
No one came, so she wandered down the garden at the back of the wall. The eight bells of the church rang the hour. She could hear the many sounds of the town about her. At last the cart was seen coming round the corner, familiar furniture piled undignified on top. Tom, her brother, and Teresa, marching on foot beside the mass, proud of having walked ten miles or more from the tram terminus. Ursula poured out beer, and the men drank thirstily by the door. A second cart was coming. Her father appeared on his motor bicycle. There was the staggering transport of furniture up the steps to the little lawn where it was deposited all pell-mell in the sunshine, very queer and discomforting. Brangwen was a pleasant man to work with, cheerful and easy. Ursula loved deciding him where the heavy things should stand. She watched anxiously the struggle up the steps and through the doorways. Then the big things were in. The cart set off again. Ursula and her father worked away carrying in all the light things that remained on the lawn and putting them in place. Dinner time came. They ate bread and cheese in the kitchen. Well, we're getting on, said Brangwen cheerfully. Two more loads arrived. The afternoon passed away in a struggle with the furniture upstairs. Towards five o'clock appeared the last loads, consisting also of Mrs. Brangwen and the younger children driven by Uncle Fred in the trap. Gudrun had walked with Margaret from the station. The whole family had come. There, said Brangwen, as his wife got down from the cart. Now we are all here. Eh, said his wife pleasantly. And the very brevity, the silence of intimacy between the two, made a home in the hearts of the children who clustered around, feeling strange in the new place. Everything was at sixes and sevens, but a fire was made in the kitchen, the hearth rug put down, the kettle set on the hob, and Mrs. Brangwen began towards sunset to prepare the first meal. Ursula and Gudrun were slaving in the bedrooms, the candles were rushing about. Then from the kitchen came the smell of ham and eggs and coffee, and in the gaslight the scrambled meal began. The family seemed to huddle together like a little camp in a strange place. Ursula felt a load of responsibility upon her, caring for the half-little ones, the smallest kept near the mother. It was dark, and the children went sleepy but excited to bed. It was a long time before the sound of voices died out. There was a tremendous sense of adventure. In the morning, everybody was awake soon after dawn, the children crying, When I wakened up, I didn't know where I was. There were the strange sounds of the town and the repeated chiming of the big church bells, so much harsher and more insistent than the little bells of Kosathe. They looked through the windows past the other new red houses to the wooded hill across the valley. They had all a delightful sense of space and liberation, space and light and air. But gradually all set to work. They were a careless, untidy family, Yet when once they set about to get the house in order, the thing went with felicity and quickness. By evening, the place was roughly established. They would not have a servant to live in the house, only a woman who could go home at night, and they would not even have the woman yet. They wanted to do as they liked in their own home, with no stranger in the midst. End of section 45